So it's March of 1872, and in the oil refining district of Cleveland, the fear was palpable. Oil refining was a harrowing business in the best of conditions. There were wild fluctuations in the price of crude oil, tough negotiations with oil drillers and railroads, and the ever-present possibility of an accidental fire taking down an entire refinery in a flash. But this was a different kind of threat. Rumors were flying that Rockefeller and his standard refinery had negotiated a backroom deal with the railroads. He'd be shipping his oil for cheap, while all the other refineries would be left in the cold, shipping their oil for exorbitant prices, if at all. In the midst of this panic, Rockefeller went to refiner after refiner, offering them a way out. Calmly, he would explain that they were doomed, but they had one option to gain something for their years of effort. And that was to sell their refinery to him for pennies on the dollar. Some of the biggest refineries in Cleveland had already capitulated. It seemed inevitable that the rest would do so as well. One refiner tried to stick up for himself. His name was John Heisel. He got upset. He started shouting. Drawing himself up to his full measure, he told Rockefeller to his face, I'm not afraid of you. Rockefeller took all this in calmly. He moved very little and the tone of his voice never changed. He responded quietly. You may not be afraid to have your hand cut off, but your body will still suffer. And then he left. Heisel sold Rockefeller his refinery the next day. Just one more casualty on the road to an oil monopoly that would change the world forever. I'm going to show you how great I am. This was our final shower. I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I'd like to take this chance to apologize to absolutely nobody. Hello and welcome to How to Take Over the World. This is Ben Wilson. Today we're going to be talking about John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller was potentially the richest man of all time, depending on how you define wealth and how you compare fortunes across time. The fortune that he amassed was worth hundreds of billions of dollars when you adjust for inflation. And if you adjust for ratio of GDP, which is what some people do, he was worth about 3% of the GDP of the USA at his wealthiest, which would be worth something like $700 billion today. So he was basically as wealthy as Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bernard Arnault, and Mark Zuckerberg all put together. And this is despite making enormous charitable donations throughout his career. His wealth was just truly mind-blowing. But his influence goes beyond simply being rich. He basically invented the modern corporation. He funded medical schools in the United States and in so doing, basically built the foundation for modern American medicine. He founded one of America's top universities. He also set the pattern for modern philanthropy in its current form as something structured, organized, and quantitatively rigorous. He really just influenced the world in a ton of different ways. I think it's a great case study on gaining wealth, but also on using that wealth to have influence and to execute on a vision and to change things, to change the world. Beyond that, he was an incredible leader and executive. One biographer called him the greatest business administrator America has ever produced. And I think he might be right. So I think this is a fun one. I think you're going to like it. My sources are the excellent biography, Titan, The Life of John D. Rockefeller Sr. by Ron Chernow, and Rockefeller's own rambling autobiography entitled Random Reminiscences of Men and Events. In this episode, I'm going to run through most of his life up until his retirement, and then next week I'll be back with an EndNotes episode that includes information on the end of his life, as well as some more information about his philanthropic efforts, and as always, some more stories and takeaways. If you want to support the show and get access to all of my EndNotes episodes, as well as the Rasputin episode, you can go ahead and sign up at takeoverpod.com 
www.supercast.com. And you can find that link in the show notes as well. And before we get into it, I want to give a quick shout out to the guys at Tamba.digital. They are an end-to-end digital agency that creates great web products that includes websites, web apps, mobile apps, and more. If you want to see a great example of their work, go to my website, takeoverpod.com. I'm really impressed with the work they did. I think it looks great. They have been incredible to work with. I think they're the best in the business for what they do. If you want to take over the world, you need a great web presence. So go to Tamba.digital, that is T-A-M-B-A dot digital, and let them know that I sent you. All right. With that said, let's get into it. Welcome to part one on the life of John D. Rockefeller. John Davison Rockefeller was born in 1839 in upstate New York at a time when that was still the frontier of America. His parents represented two very different sides of the U.S. His father was a vagabond and a huckster. He was an enormous, handsome, charismatic man who charmed his way through life. He was a larger-than-life character. He was a great gambler, a great shot with a rifle, a great joker and storyteller, and a great seducer of women. He was also a great schemer. Some of these schemes were somewhat legitimate, like his forays into logging, and others were out-and-out fraudulent, such as when he posed as a doctor to sell quack herbal concoctions. He had a sign that read, William Rockefeller, the celebrated cancer specialist here for one day only, all cases of cancer cured unless too far gone, and then can be greatly benefited. As part of his sales shtick, he would sometimes pretend to be deaf and dumb. I am not quite sure how that was helpful in selling these concoctions, but apparently it helped. And on one of these trips, where he was pretending to be deaf and dumb, a young pretty girl named Eliza Davison, who was from a rich family, said, if that man wasn't deaf and dumb, I would marry him. And wouldn't you know it, he was magically cured. So Big Bill Rockefeller and Eliza Davison were married. Eliza was from a wealthy, cultured, well-educated family. She was kind of the opposite of him. She was reserved, conservative, and religious. And as I said, this represented two different sides of America, kind of two classic archetypes, the huckster doing anything to get ahead and the hyper-religious Puritan. Bill would disappear for months at a time, out scheming and selling and seducing and living the life of a vagabond on the open road. And then he would suddenly reappear, come home to his family with a fat wad of bills and be the life of the town for a few months before he left again. John would inherit two seemingly contradictory passions from his parents. From his father, he inherited his love of money. And from his mother, he inherited his love of God. One of Bill's companions said, quote, The old man had a passion for money that amounted almost to a craze. I never met a man who had such a love of money. And Eliza was equally passionate about religion. She made sure her children went to church every week, always studied their Bible, uh, always said their prayers, always kept the commandments, never drank, never smoked. I mean, these were heavy emphases for her, in part because of her husband. She wanted to make sure that they inherited all his good attributes without becoming um, kind of a degenerate like he was. You get a feeling for the religiosity of the home from one ritual they had. Reading from the Chernow biography, uh, he says, quote, inspired by a Sunday school class on forgiveness, the children initiated a custom that suggests how religion permeated their lives. Each night when they got into bed, they turned to their siblings and said, do you forgive me all that I have done to you today? And by the time they fell asleep, the air had been cleared of all recriminations or festering anger. So how does one person combine these two things, a love of money and a love of God? I mean, after all, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Well, you know how all these great leaders have someone they're trying to emulate, someone they're trying to be like, someone whose footsteps that they're following in. For Rockefeller, 
That came from a book he would eventually pick up called Extracts from the Diary and Correspondence of the Late Amos Lawrence. Lawrence was a great American businessman, a manufacturer who had given away more than $100,000 in his life. So he represented that fusion of someone who loved earning money, but not for himself, but to give it away and glorify God. And so that is the model that John D. Rockefeller would look to for how to fuse these two passions. But I'm getting ahead of myself. When Eliza and Bill were first married, Bill brought a housekeeper into the house and says, you know, we should really employ this housekeeper. She is something special. Well, her name was Nancy Brown and she was his girlfriend and she bore him two children before Eliza finally kicked her out of the house. You know, this is like pretty amazing to think that he got away with this, um, bringing this obvious girlfriend into the house of his newlywed wife. But apparently he was just so charismatic that his wife just always was trying to reform him because uh, she loved him so much because he was such an attractive personality and such an attractive man. The family moved around upstate New York, often escaping from Bill's entanglements. You know, um, he would have a girlfriend or a business deal gone wrong, so they'd have to move to a new town. Uh, but eventually they settled just outside of Cleveland. John, who was often known as John D, goes to school there in Cleveland, and he's not an exceptional student. He's quite good at arithmetic, but otherwise is undistinguished at school. He is, however, notable for a few things. One is his hard work and determination. He studies hard. He saves his money. He's very hardworking. Another is his seriousness. One teacher described him as, quote, the coldest blooded, the quietest, and the most deliberate chap. Another thing that distinguishes him, again, from his father, is his love of money. And this is apparent from early on. One friend recounted him saying, quote, someday, sometime, when I'm a man, I want to be worth $100,000. I'm going to be too, someday. And um, this is not just one friend. Apparently, there are a number of accounts of people who heard him say something exactly like this. So I said John wasn't a brilliant student, but he was smart enough that the plan was for him to go to college. But as he's getting ready to graduate from high school, Bill lets him know that he's not going to college. That's not going to be an option because he can't pay. And the reason that Bill cannot pay for his college education is that, um, you know, Bill, he was sometimes called Devil Bill because of his many vices. And <laughs> Devil Bill had just gotten married once again back in upstate New York. He now had a secret second family. He was a bigamist. And he would live out basically the rest of his days married to two women. But this would be unknown to the Rockefellers for years. They wouldn't know that he had this other family. So without money to go to college, John paid $40 for a three-month course at Folsom's Commercial College, which is a chain of colleges that offers these little introductory business courses. It's kind of like the University of Phoenix. He learned some accounting and, and some other basic business principles. So he graduates from this when he's 16 years old and now he's a man. He's 16 years old. He's ready to go out and begin a career. And he's got his plan. Make money, make tons and tons of money and give it away. Just like this guy, Amos Lawrence. He said, quote, I remember clearly when the financial plan, if I may call it so, of my life was formed. It was out in Ohio under the administration of a dear old minister who preached, get money, get it honestly, and then give it wisely. So step one in that formula is get money. So he goes searching for a job. And this is what he says about where he was searching. Quote, I went to the railroads, to the banks, and to the wholesale merchants. I did not go to any small establishments. I did not guess what it would be, but I was after something big. And he makes it his full-time job to find work with one of these big firms. He wrote, quote, I was working every day at my business, the business of looking for work. 
So he goes around and pitches himself as an accountant and someone who's willing to help with general business tasks. And he goes to all of these businesses that he has identified, and they all say no. It was not a good time economically. There was a recession. And so no one is interested in the services of this precocious young kid. Okay, so put yourself in his shoes. You are John D. Rockefeller. You literally go ask every major establishment in the city for a job, and they all say no. Okay, well, you're supposed to try a lot, and he's tried as much as you can. He's gone to everyone. He's applied for all the jobs that meet his criteria, and they all said no. So what do you do now? Well, I'll tell you what Rockefeller did. He simply starts over from the top of the list and visits them two and sometimes three times and asks again. Like, just following up here, are you sure you don't want to hire me? And I think this is a really valuable lesson. When you encounter failure, the question is always, do I need to just keep trying or do I need to go try something new? Do I need to take a different path? And I think the question to ask yourself is the Rockefeller test. That's what I call it. If you have clarity on your goals and you know this is what you really want, then ask yourself, have I failed about twice as much as any reasonable person could possibly expect? And only then do you think about doing something different. It makes me think of the Steve Jobs quote. He's talking to John Scully and he says to him, do you want to keep selling sugar water for the rest of your life or do you want to put a dent in the universe? And the thing about the universe is it doesn't want to be dented. And so sometimes to make your dent, you just have to be like young John Rockefeller. Just keep pushing until the universe yields. So he's going through the lists again. And then on September 26th, 1855, he walks into the offices of a business called Hewitt and Tuttle. And these are merchants and shippers. They're people who are handling lots of uh, goods, lots of food, lots of dry goods. They're buying and selling salt, pork, beans, wheat, cloth, stuff like that. And they listen to him. Tuttle interviews him in the morning, and then he interviews with Hewitt in the afternoon. And he is, in fact, at the end of the day, offered a job. And for the rest of his life, he would honor September 26th as job day. And he would really celebrate it. He actually celebrated it more than his birthday, which I think tells you a lot about who he was. His, you know, his true life didn't start with his birth. His true life started when he got a job. He had no business getting that job. But I think one of the things that defines Rockefeller is his clarity of vision. I said on this podcast before that knowing what you want is a superpower. And I think it was perhaps Rockefeller's biggest superpower. He knew exactly what he wanted. Well, what Rockefeller wanted was work. And that's what he got. He started working the same day that he was hired. He would prove to be perhaps the greatest junior accountant of all time. He wrote letters, kept the books, paid bills, and collected payments. And he's unbelievably detail-oriented. Pouring over the books, finding hidden savings, challenging anyone who had overcharged them, even if it's just for a few cents. You know, you charge us a dollar and two cents, it's only supposed to be a dollar. He'd go hunt them down and get that two cents back. He was also extremely effective in collecting from debtors. He was unfailingly polite, but extremely persistent. He would go and ask for the money. And if you said, uh, I need time to, to gather it up, I need time to, to collect it. He'd, he'd just wait outside. He'd say, okay, well, I'll be here all day. So you let me know <laughs> when you're ready to pay. And, and he would just wait and wait. Rockefeller is like the Terminator. He's got this smooth outer shell of complete emotionlessness. Like he, he never gets ruffled. He rarely expresses emotion. He's got a mission and he's not going to stop until it's accomplished. He's got a great quote. Uh, he said later, you can abuse me, you can strike me, so long as you let me have my way. And that was him. He was going to get his way. He didn't care what else happened in the meantime, but what he wanted was going to happen in the end. And so with this work ethic, it's not long until he starts to rise to do really well. The older partner in the firm, Tuttle, retires in January of 1857, and Rockefeller takes over for him 
though he's only being paid a quarter of what Tuttle had been paid. And so in 1858, he raises some money and starts his own firm. He's like, look, if I'm going to do the work of a partner, but you're not going to pay me like a partner, I'm just going to start my own firm. That's what he does. With Rockefeller at the helm, this firm begins to flourish, especially when the Civil War breaks out. Commodity prices are shooting through the roof, and he's a very intelligent and capable trader. One thing Rockefeller shares with some of the other great leaders is this incredible thirst for more intel, more knowledge, more data. It reminds me quite a bit of the Rothschilds, who, if you'll recall, they had their own mail system to transmit information faster because fast, reliable information was so important to them and, and their ability to trade and make money as a bank. Well, Rockefeller does something very similar to this. Ron Chernow writes, quote, Since Rockefeller's commodity business depended upon market intelligence and a rapid flow of telegrams from various sections of the country, his office became a clubhouse for the latest battlefield bulletins. He and Maurice Clark tacked up two large detailed maps and tracked the war's progress with rapt attention. Our office became a great rallying place, said Rockefeller. We were all deeply interested. Men used to drop in often, and we followed the war keenly, reading the latest dispatches and studying the maps. So that's just like the Rothschilds who found out about the Battle of Waterloo before even Parliament did in England. And so similarly, he's like the first one to know in Cleveland when anything happens in the Civil War. And it's during this time, during the Civil War, that he actually first gets into the oil business. But before we get into that, I want to dig into some of his personal life and habits. He was, first of all, a fitness nut. He thought it was really important to exercise, to stay in shape. He didn't really play any sports at this point, but he exercised a lot. He donated money from his very first job. Now, these were the twin pillars, and he didn't wait until he was a rich man. He was always giving away money. In fact, in his first year of working, you know, He's working, he's not making very much, $500 a year, and he has to support his family because Bill is kind of not around a lot. So he's got to support his, his siblings and his mother. And so he's, he's kind of destitute. And yet we can see that in that first year, he donated 6% of what he earned. Also in his personal life, he got married around this time in 1864. He married Seti Spellman, and she shared Rockefeller's um, love for God and these virtues of hard work, religiosity, thrift, and philanthropy. And she was a great companion for him for the rest of his life because they were so united in what they wanted. In terms of food, Rockefeller was, surprise, surprise, quite a light eater. From the Chernow book again, quote, he still enjoyed bread and milk in the morning and a paper bag of apples in the evening. So you get the feeling for how light his diet was, you know, in the breakfast, just some bread and milk, and in the afternoon, just a bag of apples. And those of you who have listened to the podcast know that this is one of my pet observations. Napoleon, Steve Jobs, Joan of Arc, Alexander the Great, Caesar, Thomas Edison, all these people were notably light eaters. People commented on it. And it's because they were so focused on what they were doing that they didn't have time to be distracted by food. They were maniacs who just wanted to focus on work. I feel that way all the time. <laughs> Little known fact about me, I hate cooking. I never cook. I just, I hate taking the time away from doing this, from doing things I love. And that is why I'm really excited to partner with today's sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy meals that you microwave for two minutes and boom, you're done. Back to taking over the world. Back to work that matters. I think of Factor as my obsession fuel. I love Factor. I eat one of their meals every day for lunch. They have keto, calorie smart, and vegan options, um, which I don't do any of those. I actually do their protein plus when I can because I lift weights. I'm, I'm trying to add weight. But whatever diet you're into, Factor has meals for you. They're less expensive than takeout, and they are way healthier for you. And 
They have a bunch of options like breakfast, midday snacks. Their wellness shots are really good. I highly recommend those. So if you're interested, if you want obsession fuel to help you take over the world, go head to factormeals.com slash Ben 50. That's my name, Ben, plus the numbers five zero to get 50% off. That's code Ben 50 at factormeals.com slash Ben 50 to get 50% off. Okay, so back to oil. So one day in 1862, Rockefeller is at the office when a man named Samuel Andrew walks through the door. Andrew knows his business partner, Clark is the guy's name. And Andrew is a mechanical genius and has an idea for a new type of oil refinery. He just needs some money to get it started. The oil business is brand new. The world's first large oil deposits had recently been discovered in northwestern Pennsylvania. And when we talk about the oil business, you you probably think of gasoline. That's where my head went as well. But there were no automobiles yet, so gasoline was not the primary use for oil. It was actually kerosene. The Civil War had impacted the whaling industry, so whale fat um, was getting very expensive, which is what they would use to make candles and and lighting products. And oil-derived kerosene was a much cheaper option at the time. So there's this big boom in drilling for oil in order to get kerosene to, for people to use to light their homes. So Andrew pitches Clark on this plant that will supposedly be able to refine more kerosene out of raw crude oil. But Clark turns him down, says that all their money is tied up and deployed at the moment. But Andrew is determined. So he goes and pitches his friend's partner, Rockefeller, who says that he likes the idea. So when Andrew goes back to Clark and Clark hears that Rockefeller is interested, he says, I impulsively replied, if John will go in, I will. So they pledged $4,000 for this new oil refinery, which was a lot of money to them back then. That was more capital than they had. The refinery immediately starts doing well, as was every other refinery in Cleveland. And there were more than 20 of them. Rockefeller is not a passive investor in this thing. He's very involved. He wants to learn the oil business and do everything he can to make it very successful. So he's rolling barrels and sweeping up shavings. He's really good at finding savings, as he was in every other business. He figures out that barrels to carry the oil is one of their biggest costs, at $2.50 per barrel. And so Rockefeller starts doing some back-of-the-napkin math and figures out that, hey, if we just manufacture these barrels themselves, we could do it much cheaper. So they start doing it, and they manage to get the cost down to less than a dollar per barrel. Huge cost saving for them. He's also good at making sure that they use as much of the oil as possible. So other refiners would extract the kerosene from the crude oil. Uh, You know, they would refine it and kerosene would come out to about half. I think it's actually 60% of of the oil. And then the other 40%, the rest of it, they would just dump into the river. And in fact, the river would often catch on fire because there was (laughs) so much oil in it. But Rockefeller, you know, with these good old Puritan values, he hates waste. Right? So he made sure that they used the rest of the oil to make other products when they could. So they use it to make gasoline, paraffin, benzene, petroleum jelly, uh, and a number of other products like paints and lubricants. And so with this approach, they're really successful. And within a year, it was the most profitable part of their business. You know, They had been doing commodities for a while, but they're making more money on oil than they are on trading all these commodities. So for Rockefeller, it was full steam ahead. He's ready to forget about commodities and become a full-time oil man. He loves it. He believes in it. His partner, Maurice Clark, said, quote, John had an abiding faith in two things, the Baptist creed and oil. And it's true. He had this amazing belief in oil his entire life. He's like, this industry is only going up. He really believed that. 
And so he wants to expand quickly and he wanted to borrow as much money as he possibly could in order to do so. A quote from him at the time, he said, we should borrow whenever we can safely extend the business by doing so. So he's going to banks, he's going to people around Cleveland and whenever he can, he's getting more money to expand the refinery, buy more refineries, do whatever he can. But Clark was scared by all of this borrowing and expansion. Oil was still a new industry and he thought this was all very risky. Rockefeller later said, quote, Clark was very angry when I borrowed money to extend our business of refining oil. Why, you have borrowed $100,000, he exclaimed, as if that was some sort of offense. Clark was an old grandmother and was scared to death because we owed money at the banks. <laughs> I love that quote. Clark was an old grandmother and was scared to death because we owed money to the banks. That's one thing about Rockefeller. He was just fearless. So finally, they just can't keep going on together. They're too divided on this question of expansion, Rockefeller and Clark. And so they decide to split up and they are going to bid on the firm. And so Rockefeller ends up buying out Clark for $72,000. And that's a good amount. It's the equivalent of a few million dollars today, inflation adjusted. And so, you know, I think Clark thinks, all right, I did, I did pretty well on this transaction. But I mean, he sold half of what would become Standard Oil, one of the greatest corporations of all time, for a few million dollars. Oops. Well, without Clark, Rockefeller continues to expand rapidly. He's a really good borrower, as I said. He can get money on really good terms by never seeming too eager to borrow, never seeming too excited. There's a one famous time when he's walking down the street and he really needs $15,000. He's trying to buy this refinery and so he, he needs money bad. And a banker pulls up and says, hey, Rockefeller, I've got $50,000 I'm trying to deploy. Do you have any use for it? Can I, can I lend you the money? And Rockefeller, who needs this money really badly, says, well, can you give me 24 hours to think it over? And so by doing that, he makes it seem like He's in no rush. He's got no urgent need of this money. Yeah, I guess, I guess I'll take it. I'll take this loan if you can give me good terms. And so he, he gets the money on better terms than he might have, you know, lower interest rate. And the downside to this approach is Rockefeller is redlining it all the time. So there are times when the business almost goes under because he's so leveraged. Uh, there's one time when a refinery burns down, which they very often did. They were huge fire hazards and he hadn't yet been compensated by his insurance company. So he's in a cash crunch and he really needs capital or they're going to go out of business and no one's lending to him, but he had a really good reputation with many of the biggest banks in Cleveland because he was so consistent and so honest that when there was an exceptional circumstance, like a refinery burning down, they believed in him. And so he goes to a bank and, um, you know, the clerks say, you know, you've already borrowed from us. We're not going to extend you any more credit. And then the bank's director, a guy by the name of Stillman Witt, in the middle of this, sees what's happening. And he goes and he says, hey, go get me my personal safe, my lockbox. And they bring him his lockbox and he opens it and starts taking out money and says, quote, gentlemen, these young men are all OK. And if they want to borrow more money, I want to see this bank advance it without hesitation. And if you want more security, here it is. Take what you want. And so, of course, Rockefeller gets the loan. During this time, he ends up getting a new partner, and his name is Henry Flagler. Flagler is the perfect business partner for Rockefeller. He is the Charlie Munger to Rockefeller's Warren Buffett. They just immediately like each other, they understood each other, and they push each other. Both were really excited about oil. Both were very aggressive and just wanted to push and push. And they riled each other up and got each other even more excited for this new business. Flagler is one of these larger-than-life characters, very aggressive, very shrewd, and a phenomenal negotiator, which would be really important in their business. 
he always carried a sign on his desk that said, quote, do unto others as they would do unto you and do it first. So shortly after this partnership, Flagler and Rockefeller encounter their first major crisis. So the Pennsylvania Railroad, which is one of the major railroads in the United States at the time, which carries crude oil to Cleveland and then carries kerosene and their finished products back east to, to sell to the major markets, you know, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, whatever. They were allied with refiners in Pennsylvania, naturally enough, and they make the decision and put out the word that they are going to wipe out the Cleveland refiners, like with a sponge. And this could have spelled disaster because look, if you can't move your oil, you have no business, right? This is the end. But one of Rockefeller's greatest attributes is that he was always calm under pressure, totally unflappable. When there was a crisis, he seemed to get even more calm and view things even more clearly. And so he surveys the situation and comes up with a plan. So what they do is in the end, they build a pipeline uh, to get themselves the crude oil and then negotiate deals with the other railroads to transport the oil um, along different routes. And the point of all this is that what was supposed to be a disaster ends up becoming a huge opportunity uh, because they're able to get better deals with these other railroads, in fact. And so they dramatically reduce their transportation costs. And they do this, again, by cozying up to the other railroads and striking a sweetheart deal where they will ship Rockefeller's oil for cheaper than other people. And this would be one of the major themes throughout Rockefeller's career. And a point of major controversy was his ability to strike up these deals with the railroads. Because many people think that they are not supposed to be giving out discounts. They think of the railroads like public utilities because they were built, uh, you know, being backed by the federal government, often on public lands. And so, you know, people think naturally enough, everyone is supposed to have equal access to them as a public carrier. In other words, anyone is supposed to be able to ship something on the railroad for X number of dollars per carload with no favoritism to any particular supplier. So it was controversial for Rockefeller to get discounts from the railroads. Um, and critics viewed this as like a fight for the soul of America. If the railroads start giving discounts to big oil companies for shipping large volume, then the big companies are going to have, you know, cheaper transportation costs, which only gives them more of an advantage against their smaller competitors. So what you're going to end up with is just a couple big oil companies and you're going to starve out, you know, the little guy. So on the one hand, that's pretty understandable why that's unfair. But on the other hand, I mean, this is great for the railroads because they get more volume, more consistently. It's regular. They can count on it. And really importantly, they don't have to make as many stops for each train. So if you've got a bunch of little suppliers dotted all over the, the country, then you've got to stop all these different stations and add a new car each time. You get fewer cars per trip. It's just much less efficient. This makes sense for them. It obviously makes sense for Rockefeller. And they see nothing wrong with it. But even so, um, it's so controversial that the deal is actually never committed to paper. This is just a handshake agreement. And Rockefeller, who still views himself as God's servant, the ultimate Baptist, he always puts a nice veneer on it. He says, let's not put it down on paper uh, just because I think that's a best practice. <laughs> he says, quote, our people do not think it would be best for us to have a contract. But with good faith between us and desire to promote each other's interest, we can serve each other better by being able to say that we have no contracts. So, you know, like, uh, you know, I think this is just uh, a good way to do business. Let's just do a handshake and uh, just in case we won't sign any contracts. Okay. 
So this railroad deal is a major coup for Rockefeller. He's shipping his oil for super cheap. Uh, he's able to be more profitable than all his competitors. And his business is only growing. He's outcompeting all of his competitors. But um, a major problem comes. There is a huge crisis in the oil industry for the oil refiners. So just a year later, refining capacity grows to the point where it is triple what the market needs. You have all these people seeing, whoa, these refineries are making money. I'm going to go open up a refinery. And so you have this huge glut, just way too many refineries. And so there's not enough business for everyone. Prices crash and, um, and no one's making money. Everyone's going broke. Rockefeller estimated that 90% of all refiners were headed towards bankruptcy. They were all losing money. And it's a terrible situation, but it's a prisoner's dilemma. For the entire industry, there's too much refining capacity, so everyone's losing money. But for each individual refiner, many of them are in debt, so they want to refine whatever they can. So in other words, some refiners need to shut down, but no one wants to raise their hand and be the unlucky one and say, okay, we'll shut down our operations. So how do you solve this? It's a terrible situation. And there's no way to solve it without taking control of the entire industry. You know, that, I guess that would be the only way. Now, most people, when they hear that, they focus on, there's no way to solve it. <laughs> Rockefeller hears it and focuses on without taking control of the entire industry. And so he goes, well, there's the solution right there. I just have to take over the entire oil refining industry. And so this is the moment when he decides that that's exactly what he's going to do. Uh, these years, 1869 and 1870, is when he starts to conceive of this new idea that he calls cooperation. You know, it's cooperation rather than competition. Like, look, we've been competing with each other. We're driving each other out of business. So let's cooperate instead. That sounds so nice. We'll coordinate prices and consolidate and cooperate our operations however we can in order to make the industry more efficient and more profitable. Now, there is another word for this kind of cooperation. It's called a cartel. And such behavior is very much illegal now. And, um, you know, the United States, kind of the Wild West back then, not a lot of laws around this, but it was still cartel behavior was very much frowned upon. And Rockefeller was never embarrassed by it. He really believed in this principle of cooperation. He believed it was just good business. And he believed that he really could consolidate the entire industry under his control. And that's exactly what he set about doing. But before I tell you how he did it, I want to tell you about another podcast. It's called Big Shots. It's a podcast from Harley Finkelstein, founder of Shopify, and David Siegel, founder of David's Tea and Firebelly Tea. So they're two really successful entrepreneurs, and they interview and tell the stories of some of the great Jewish entrepreneurs in the world. Both of them are Jewish. And so they're incredible interviewers, and they get really deep on some of these amazing unknown stories of entrepreneurs who rose up and changed the world and how they defied the odds and found success. You really need to listen to their interview with David Rubenstein. I have it linked up in the show notes. I didn't know his story, and it's incredible. This guy becomes one of the OG founders of the private equity industry, despite not being a finance guy. He was in politics, and he was a lawyer. And then <laughs> it's, it's a cool story of how he ends up founding uh, Carlyle, which is one of these mega private equity firms. It's an incredible lesson in how to reinvent yourself mid-career and find success doing something different. I loved it. I think it's a great interview. I think you guys will love it. I, again, I linked it up in the show notes. Even if you're not Jewish, which I'm not, 
I think you'll love this podcast and the stories that they tell. So go give it a listen. Again, that is Big Shot and you can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so Rockefeller is saying, all right, <laughs> I'm going to take over this entire industry. The first thing I need is a war chest. So he gets the fundamentals right first. He establishes a joint stock firm. He abolishes Rockefeller, Andrew, and Flagler, which was the original oil firm that he had established. And uh, he establishes the Standard Oil Company. And Standard Oil is supposed to be, you know, this is the standard. It's a very good name, I think. It gives the impression of quality and competence. They are setting the standard for good oil products. And they raise a million dollars. That's a ton of money back then. And for this phase of what they're trying to do, Rockefeller's answer to every problem is to raise more money, go bigger, centralize, consolidate, and encourage cooperation. So they begin to quickly expand. Standard Oil starts to buy up other refineries where possible, and before long controls 10% of American petroleum refining, as well as some other assets like barrel making, warehouses, and shipping facilities, things like that. You know, they're trying to consolidate the industry in order to shut down some of these other refiners and, uh, you know, match supply to demand. Now, even so, even with this difficult circumstance of, you know, triple the supply, they're able to be profitable right from the very get-go. And then in 1871, they have another major coup uh, with the railroads. So Standard Oil and a few other powerful refiners meet with the biggest railroads. Those are the Pennsylvania, the New York Central, and the Erie Railroad. And they all come up with this idea that they are going to increase cooperation even further. The idea is to form a double cartel. They would not have used those words, but that's exactly what it was. The railroads will charge these refiners even less to ship even more oil. And in return, Standard Oil will act as an evener, stopping competition between the railroads and making sure that there is a fixed amount of traffic that goes to each railroad and consistent pricing. So basically, all these people are competing on price and it's driving all of them broke. And so they all just decide, we'll stop that. <laughs> we'll fix the prices. <laughs> I guess they would say set the prices. They probably wouldn't call it price fixing, but they'll set the prices and they'll control them, and then everyone will end up profitable. Well, you know, this is not only classic cartel behavior, it's a double cartel that controls, like, the entire oil industry. So they form an organization called the South Improvement Corporation to carry this out. It's called the SIC. Well, once word leaks out about the SIC, there is a huge backlash. In oil country, there are literal riots. Uh, they're, you know, attacking oil cars, they're uh, attacking pipelines and destroying them. There are also boycotts and the state legislature of Pennsylvania gets involved. And so there's this huge backlash. And only a month after the agreement, the railroads decide to abandon the SIC. So it's a failure, right? They start the SIC less than a month later, it's gone. Well, not really, because the announcement triggers a panic back in Cleveland. This is the story that I told at the very beginning of the episode. And it's during this month of panic that we see the famous Cleveland massacre that I talked about. So between the first rumors of the SIC and the time it was scuttled, Rockefeller managed to acquire 22 of his 26 Cleveland competitors. And he's acquiring them for cents on the dollar, in part because of this climate of fear he had created. Now, he viewed this as benevolent. He thinks, look, I could have just waited for all these people to go out of business. They're basically all losing money. And instead, I'm paying them something and oftentimes allowing them to join Standard Oil. They don't deserve anything. They're going to go out of business in a couple of years. This is downright philanthropic of me. 
In fact, one of his subordinates would later say about one of these types of acquisitions, he says, quote, it almost makes me weepy to pay good money for this kind of junk. But as it is part of our duty to mankind, I suppose it is necessary to carry it through without flinching. <laughs> it's amazing. That's right. It is a burden to become a billionaire by forming an oil monopoly. Um, we're only doing this out of our duty to mankind that we're paying for all these refineries. So this is the attitude I'm adopting from now on. It makes me weepy, weepy to give away how to take over the world premium for only $7 a month. You people make me sick. But since it is my duty to mankind, I guess I will carry on without flinching, just like Standard Oil. Well, anyway, after the Cleveland massacre, Rockefeller and Flagler lead Standard Oil to do very similar things in other major oil refining markets. So they're going to Pittsburgh and they're going to Philadelphia and they're going to these smaller refineries and they're saying, hey, we're going to crush you unless you sell us your refinery for very cheap and then you can join um, the crew. You can join Standard Oil and you'll do very well. Again, through all of this, Standard Oil continues to be very profitable. So they're making more and more money. Uh, they're also borrowing like crazy to fund this expansion. And they're just a runaway freight train. They are buying up all their competitors and there is nothing that anyone can do about it. Standard Oil has such advantages because of their scale that others can't compete and they basically have to sell. Their first real competition comes from a technological innovation, comes from the Tidewater Pipeline. This is the world's first long distance pipeline and it's supposed to get around standard oil control of the railroads by, you know, piping crude oil directly from the oil fields in Western Pennsylvania to the coast where it can be refined. And Standard Oil had already built pipelines, but nothing like this, right? I mean, people didn't even know if it was technically feasible. They're going to have to go over hills and through all this country. It's a huge technical undertaking. And Standard Oil pulls out every dirty trick in their bag to stop this Tidewater pipeline. I guess not every dirty trick. Um, there are some people on the executive committee who say, this is really simple. Let's just send some thugs, let's hire some people to go smash up the pipeline. <laughs> let's just Let's just destroy it. And Rockefeller says, no. Um, but we are going to try everything else. So they threaten manufacturers and suppliers to not work with Tidewater. They say, if you do, you're not getting any of our business. They buy up vertical strips of land that stretch the entire length of Pennsylvania. So they're going to all these farmers just like, hey, can we buy just like a little piece of your land? They're like, okay, I guess. So they own vertical strips. So they can basically say, hey, we own this longitude <laughs> in Pennsylvania. Uh, there's no way for you to, to build through here. Um, they also bribe politicians to pass laws to ban the pipeline in their state. But ultimately, they can only slow it down and Tidewater persists. They're very impressive, frankly. And the Tidewater company finishes their pipeline. And so it's like, oh no, Standard Oil has their first major competitor. And then within months, they come to Standard Oil and they say, you know what we really don't like? Competing on price and making low margins. So, uh, what if we were to cooperate on pricing and standard oil says that sounds great to us. You know, we will, we'll standardize our pricing and we'll cooperate with you guys. And so their only competition quickly gets brought into the standard oil orbit and gets neutralized within months of their pipeline being completed. So after all this shakes out, standard oil is enormous and they have basically accomplished what Rockefeller set out to do. They have complete control of the oil refining industry. Here's how uh, Ron Chernow describes it in his biography. He says, quote, thus only five years after the Cleveland massacre, the 38 year old Rockefeller with piratical flair and tactical brilliance had come to control nearly 90% of the oil refined in the United States. 
perhaps a hundred tiny refineries still eked out a meager living in the interstices of the industry, but they were mostly tolerated as minor nuisances and scarcely threatened standard oil. As Rockefeller himself acknowledged, these isolated cases served a useful political purpose, providing a mirage of competition when it had ceased to exist altogether. So in other words, standard oil controls 90% of the industry. The only reason they don't control 100% is they like to keep around a little competition so that, you know, when politicians get mad at them saying, hey, you have a monopoly, they can say, no, we don't. Look at these other guys. Meanwhile, those little guys are tiny and, and can't do anything. So Rockefeller is the king of oil at 38. He's won the game. In the 1880s, they decide to vertically integrate even more, controlling the end distribution. So they have salesmen who go out and actually supply all these various general stores with standard oil products. And once again, they are incredibly vicious and heavy-handed in doing this. They force all of these stores to carry only standard oil products, threatening them that if they carry anyone else's products, they will start their own stores and sell everything at cost just to drive them out of business. And they do this a couple of times to set an example. This is also when they start buying oil fields for the first time. So again, they are vertically integrating. That means controlling the entire process from raw materials to sales. So they start buying oil fields in Ohio. This is the first oil fields discovered outside of Pennsylvania. And this is actually a controversial decision to buy these oil fields because um, they're not as high quality as the Pennsylvania oil fields. They produce oil that is high in sulfur. So it smells terribly when it's burned. It's called skunk oil is what a lot of people call it. So most people are not interested in these oil fields because what are you going to do with skunk oil? Like you, you can't really sell it as kerosene. No one's going to want it because it smells so terrible. But Rockefeller had these almost oracular powers. He could see into the future. He's one of the best decision makers I've ever seen. On major decisions in his career, he's like 19 for 20. He like just always somehow knows to make the right decision, even when there's nothing obvious telling you why this would be the right decision. And that's true for this oil field, uh, the Lima oil field. Some standard oil executives are squeamish. It's like, yeah, what are we going to do with this oil? And so um, they don't want to go forward. One of the quirks about Rockefeller is he liked to make decisions by unanimity. So on his executive board, he wanted everyone to agree to the decision, not just a majority. And so he's got one holdout who's saying, no, we should not buy this stuff. This is a bad deal. And finally, Rockefeller says, okay, you know what? If you're going to hold out, I will take my own private money to buy these oil fields because that is how strongly I feel about acquiring them. And this guy says kind of, all right, ah, shucks, John. If you feel that strongly, I guess I'll go along with it. So he gets the standard board to agree and they buy these Lima oil fields. And at first they just start storing the stuff. There's, there's nothing they can do with it. At one point they have over 40 million barrels worth of Lima oil in storage tanks just sitting there. But Rockefeller hires a chemist to come see if he can purify the sulfur out of this oil. And eventually this chemist figures it out and they're able to treat it, clean out the stench and sell it for full price. And so they have acquired all this oil for really cheap. And it's a huge win for Standard Oil. They never tried to monopolize oil production the way they did oil refining, but at their height, they control about a third of U.S. oil production, which allows them to ensure that there is regular, predictable supply of crude, and it makes them less reliant on outside drillers. So the 1880s, uh, when this is happening, are incredibly profitable for Standard Oil. They are printing 
15 to 20% dividends every single year. And that is after pumping most of their money back into the business to expand it. In fact, it is growing so big and so lucrative that it attracts a lot of negative attention. It becomes a boogeyman. And there are all these political cartoons that show Standard Oil as an evil octopus with its tentacles controlling everything. The New York World is one of their big antagonists. That's a newspaper. And in one memorable article, uh, the World reports on the Geodetic Association. Uh, they study the Earth. And they had just announced plans to try and more accurately measure the size of the Earth. And the World wrote that this is a good idea because it would, quote, enable the Standard Oil Trust to learn the exact size of their property. The backlash is bad enough that in 1890, Congress passes the Sherman Antitrust Act, and this is specifically designed to restrain a big monopoly like Standard Oil. They had Standard Oil in mind when they passed this legislation. But with their political connections and with plenty of bribes and some clever legal maneuvering, Standard Oil is able to completely avoid any repercussions for 17 years. So the Sherman Antitrust Act is passed, specifically designed to break up trusts like Standard Oil, and nothing happens to Standard Oil for 17 years. Uh, It would eventually come back to bite them in 1907, uh, which is something that we will talk about next episode. Um, As you might realize, there is no Standard Oil today, and that's because it was eventually broken up. Now, all throughout the 1880s, as Standard Oil is growing and the money is piling up for Rockefeller, he goes from being one of the 20 richest men in America to being in the top 10, and then he vaults all the way up to number two, just behind Andrew Carnegie. With all this money and his reputation as a philanthropist, Rockefeller is besieged with charitable requests. Many of them are just people saying, hey, Rockefeller, give me money. And he is getting hundreds of letters per day requesting money. And this really stresses him out because charity is everything to him. It's really important to him. It's one of the twin pillars of his life, making money and giving it away. But he's getting way more requests than he can even read, let alone respond to, let alone help out in some way. He's also getting stressed out for another reason. And that is because there are constant legal challenges to Standard Oil. And in fact, sometimes he kind of has to like go on the run. (laughs) He has to make sure that he's avoiding anyone who can serve him papers. Um, He's afraid of being hauled to court or possibly even to jail for his behavior in the business world. And so uh, he has like a minor breakdown from all of this stress. His health starts suffering. He gets depressed. He loses all of his hair. Like he doesn't just go bald. He does go bald, but he also loses his eyebrows, his mustache, and his body hair falls out. And so he decides to begin stepping away from Standard Oil. And I think it's not just the stress. It's the fact that I mean, he'd kind of done it. He had done what he set out to do. He had more money than he knew what to do with. And so the adventure and the excitement was gone for him. And so this takes some time. He gets pulled back briefly in the mid 1890s. Uh, there's a big depression, a uh, big market crash. And so he has to come, you know, right the ship, stabilize things. But by 1897, he is done leading Standard Oil and he hands over the reins as day-to-day chief executive and he retires. So let's take stock of where he is at. He is the international king of oil. He's got the largest and fastest growing company in the world. He is the world's second richest man. And oh yeah, the automobile hasn't even come around yet. Like he's kind of king of the world and he still hasn't even made half of the fortune that he would eventually make. And he's retiring and focusing his efforts full-time on giving away all this money that he has. 
So let's stop the story there and take a look at how he was able to do all of this. And let me start off by saying Rockefeller didn't think that he was anything special as a leader. He thought it was a completely learnable skill. He said, quote, the ability to deal with people is as purchasable a commodity as sugar or coffee. So what are these skills and how do you learn them? How do you take over the world like Rockefeller if it's so learnable? So one thing is he was incredibly detail oriented. Okay. All these great leaders are extremely detail oriented. You know, one of the things about Walt Disney, he always wanted to see the individual illustrations of any new cartoons and he'd get involved and say, "Ah, can I see it a few more ways? He always wanted to see different versions and revisions. Uh, he, He wanted to get into the details, not just of the business of Disney, but down to the actual illustrations down to, you know, the bricks that were used in Disneyland. Like he was a very detail oriented leader. Same with Steve Jobs. There's this famous story of him getting into the weeds of a presentation. He didn't like the color of a certain slide in a presentation. He said, it's a green. Can we change that green? He keeps coming back and having him change it until finally one time they get just the green he likes. And he goes, great green, great green. And so everyone walks around mocking him for that week. Great green, great green. Um, Napoleon, of course, was famous for, you know, even hand positioning cannons at times in battle. He was so involved in the details. That's why he was known as Le Petit Corporal. I could go on, but great leaders are always detail oriented. And so was Rockefeller. Here's a, a quote from the Chernow biography. He says, quote, as a former bookkeeper, Rockefeller devoted special attention to ledgers. One accountant recalled him stopping by his desk and saying courteously, permit me, then flipping quickly through the books. Very well kept, he said. Very indeed. Then his eyes leapt to a tiny error. A little error here. Will you correct it? The accountant was flabbergasted by the speed with which Rockefeller had scanned so many dense columns of figures. And I will take my oath, he reported, that it was the only error in the book. Okay, so that's what kind of detail-oriented leader he was. That He could look through an accounting book and pick out one single tiny error and have it corrected. One of the other big things about Rockefeller is his consistency. Listen to this passage. I love this. Uh, This is again from Chernow. Quote, he walked with a measured gait, steady as a metronome, always covering the same distance in the exact same time. He always shows up to meetings exactly on time, not a minute late, not a minute early. He always pays back his loans exactly on the day that they are due. He always does exactly what he says he will do when he says he will do it. He's incredibly consistent in every element of his life. Uh, Another thing I'll point out is that one of the big themes of this podcast is focus. Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. You've heard me say it before. All of them have famous stories about how important focus is. And Rockefeller has one of the great quotes about focus, I think. I love this. Listen to this. He said, do not many of us who fail to achieve big things fail because we lack concentration. The art of concentrating the mind on the thing to be done at the proper time and at the exclusion of everything else. I I love that. Focusing the mind on the thing to be done at the proper time to the exclusion of everything else. I think more than anything, this explains the success of Rockefeller. I would add to that determination. He focused on exactly what needed to be done and what he wanted. And then he was relentless in pursuing it. He was a bulldog, you know, going around to prospective employers two or three times until someone hired him, waiting outside debtors' houses until they paid, Um, going and visiting refineries multiple times until they agreed to sell to him. He just persisted. And he would endure anything to accomplish what he needed to. Remember that awesome quote, you can abuse me, you can strike me, so long as you let me have my way. Another thing is he really believed in hiring and empowering the right people. 
Here's another great quote from Titan. Quote, so highly did Rockefeller value personnel that during the first years of Standard Oil, he personally attended to routine hiring matters. After conquering the other refining centers, the payroll ballooned to 3,000 people, and this became impossible. Taking for granted the growth of his empire, he hired talented people as found, not as needed. In other words, if he found someone really talented, he hired them. Even if he didn't have a clear position to put them in, even if he didn't know exactly what he wanted to do with them at that exact moment, he knew he would eventually be able to put them to good use, and so he would hire them if they were available. In order to keep those good people, he paid his employees a little bit above market rates. You know, he was so cheap, he was so parsimonious that he wasn't going to pay extravagant salaries, but he was going to pay a little premium and incentivize them with Standard Oil stock. And then this is something I found really interesting. If you listen to the last episode, to the Mr. Beast episode, I thought one of the most interesting things that he said was that he doesn't have any training procedures. His procedure is you hire really talented people and then you stick them with the person whose job they're taking over, um, who they're supposed to learn from. And they just stay attached to them and they sit with them. They learn how they work. They're tutored by them until they're ready to go. And that's exactly what Rockefeller does as well. Uh, in Titan, it says, quote, to orchestrate such a gigantic operation, he had to delegate authority. And part of the standard oil gospel was to train your subordinate to do your job. Okay, so it's the same thing. Like um, you train people to do your exact job. It was their training program. And then one thing that I think is interesting, I haven't seen anyone else do this. So I won't say that it's a pattern, but it's so different that I think it's worth highlighting because it's interesting, is that he insisted on unanimity. We talked about that. He has this board of really talented people and said that he wouldn't take any major decisions without unanimous consent from this board. And sometimes they would feud and they would bicker, but eventually they would all come around to the same viewpoint. I won't say that this is always the best way to manage, but I did find it interesting. Uh, Maybe it's just a testament to how capable of a leader that he could always get everyone on board with the right idea. One other quote I wanted to highlight. Uh, I love this. It says, most of all, Rockefeller inspired subordinates with his fanatic perfectionism. He never did anything haphazardly and wrote hundreds of thousands of business letters that were models of concision and balanced phrasing, the product of painstaking revision. And so I love that. Like even in his letters, he would go through revision and revision to ensure that they were perfect. You know, there's the famous quote from Steve Jobs who said, be a benchmark of quality. And that benchmark for Rockefeller was perfection. Uh, there's this great quote. I can't remember who it's from, but I'm lifting it from the podcast founders. Uh, David Senra surfaced it, who said that the founder is the soul of the company. And that's because they are that yardstick of quality. They insist on living up to certain values or ideals uh, on certain levels of, of quality, essentially. And that's something that Rockefeller also did well. Rockefeller inspired subordinates with his fanatic perfectionism. Okay, two other things that I will mention. One is his impatience. Again, he actually could have waited for all these refineries to go out of business, but instead he wanted to buy them up and get them out of the way. Why? He had this great impatience. Like he just always wanted to be moving forward, Uh, which is interesting because, you know, he also had a lot of patience. He could wait for things and be persistent when he needed to be, but he always wanted to move forward as quickly as possible. He wanted to move fast. That's another big theme that you see through all these great leaders. They want to move fast, ceaseless energy. And then the last one I'll mention is self-belief.
Just like Napoleon, Rockefeller believed in his own destiny. There's a great moment from early in his career when he had just completed a deal. And he would get really excited whenever he completed deals. It was like the only time that he showed tons of emotion. And someone catches him pacing back and forth and they hear him say, I am bound to be rich, bound to be rich, bound to be rich. (laughs) He keeps repeating it and he starts shouting it. I am bound to be rich. And you must believe in yourself the same way that Rockefeller did. You are bound for success. That is why you were attracted to this podcast. You know that you are bound to take over the world. Believe this. Believe that you are bound to take over the world. Until next time, thank you for listening to How to Take Over the World.